On episode two of Dissecting Love, we're going to be looking at the other time of the month. Not the time you're thinking of. We're going to be trying to understand how women's behavior changes at the time of the month when they're more likely to conceive a baby. And joining me, I've got a very special guest. I'm Rob Brooks from the University of New South Wales, and our lab is the sex lab. Rob Brooks is a behavioral ecologist at the University of New South Wales. And he's also my former supervisor. Yeah, I studied the evolutionary biology um, of sex and of the consequences of sex because sex changes just about everything. Now, biologists are really interested in this time of the month because this time is when women are most likely to conceive. So that's the time when they're likely to be making all sorts of interesting decisions about the kind of men they want to father their offspring. What makes this period even more interesting is the fact that men often don't know when it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated business and it's getting ever more complicated recently. But, you know, humans are kind of weird uh, for mammals in that they have no estrus. So if you think of a dog, you know, dogs um, come on heat or bitches come on heat and then, you know, all the dogs in the neighbourhood know about it and they try and compete to get access to the female and they mate with her. And you can imagine human society if that was the situation. I mean, it's really hard to imagine, but, you know, um, women don't advertise exactly when they're at their most fertile and they also have sex, you know, throughout the month, even when they're pregnant and stuff, which is quite different from a lot of other mammals. So men can't tell when women are most likely to conceive a baby And women continue to have sex at all sorts of other times when they're very unlikely to conceive a baby. So why would women have evolved to be so secretive in this stuff? Well, there's two main reasons. One is that um, they want to keep their partners interested throughout the month. Otherwise, you know, the guys that drift away and and not contribute to um, the household, not contribute to the pair bond and all those things you talked about in your last episode. Um, The other is, of course, that if if there was this one period in which women would seem to be incredibly fertile, then they'd get all sorts of attention, including lots of unwanted attention from other men. So, you know, we've made inroads into the question about why um, women are so cryptic about their ovulation. But does that mean that we've lost estrus entirely? Certainly for decades now, anthropologists have said so. Humans have no estrus. When you look at other primates, they have varying levels of estrus. Uh, Some have a really clear estrus, and others look a lot more like us. For example, our closest relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, tend to not have a clear estrus at all. In these species, females have a long period of fertility where they mate with lots of different males. But like us, they have a short period in the middle where they're most likely to conceive. During that time, they tend to mate with dominant males or young up-and-coming males that look like they might turn out to be dominant males in the future. Now, theory says that these females are probably choosing to mate with the males with the best genes during the time when they're most likely to conceive. So what does this say about us? Do we do the same thing? Now, in humans, um, what we do know is that women at the fertile peak during the six-day period in which they're most likely to conceive if they had sex at that time 
those women are um, more likely to uh, express a dissatisfaction with their partner, a, a sexual dissatisfaction in particular, or not being attracted to their partner, particularly if he's of a more kind of um, feminine or less dominant kind of type. They're also more likely to express an interest in or fantasizing about other men, particularly dominant sort of uber-masculine men. And so there is an idea out there that women are gene shopping at this time, that they're going out and they're looking for the guys with the best genes, and they may be furtively sneaking off and having sex with those men, um, but persuading some other guy, their partner, that actually he is the one, you know, he was the dad. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts in that theory, and as you can imagine, it's really, really complicated. Some bits have got plenty of scientific attention, and other bits have been almost not examined at all. So some of the stuff that's been researched the most in this area are the kind of features that women find attractive when they're at their peak fertility. And so to study this, researchers will bring a whole bunch of women into the lab and show them a whole lot of male faces and ask them which ones they find most attractive. At the time when women are most likely to conceive a baby, they tend to prefer faces that are super masculine, with big jaws, high cheekbones, and eyes that are kind of far apart, your classic Captain America type features. All of the things that essentially set male faces apart from female faces. So you took, you know, hundreds of male faces, hundreds of female faces, and you said, what combination of measurements defines the difference between the sexes? Well, the men who are you know, have the uber-male combinations of that are the males that tend to be favoured at this time. But interestingly, women don't really like those men at other times. And that's the really interesting thing about these studies. When you ask women about short-term relationships, they'll pick these hyper-masculine faces. But when you ask them about longer-term relationships, about picking someone to become their partner, they'll tend to favour really different types of men. When, when you're asked about pairing up with somebody, finding the guy to be the dad, if not the father, um, you, uh, you, you often find that women prefer somewhat more feminine men. But it's quite controversial at the moment because there are lots and lots of studies that, of course, haven't shown these types of effects. Those studies, because they are non-significant, you know, researchers will often, you know, question themselves and go, well, what did I do wrong? Rather than saying, I found no evidence of this, they kind of talk themselves out of publishing it and, and it doesn't find um, itself in a journal. In order to clear up the answer once and for all, a team of researchers decided to do a meta-analysis. They decided to collect all of the published studies as well as all of the unpublished studies about this topic and put the data all together and have a look at what the results showed. Did women really, really exhibit this preference for ultra-masculine males at their most fertile point in the cycle? Interestingly, when they looked for ovulatory shifts in preferences, the team started to break up, the, the team of scientists started to break up um, for various reasons that I won't go into now. But uh, they decided to split up because they just couldn't quite agree on the criteria for which studies to include and which ones to not include, etc. And so... A team um, led by Wendy Wood at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles 
um, basically lumped all the studies together. They didn't distinguish between long-term and short-term questions, and they found no evidence for cycle shifts. And so they published this meta-analysis that says no evidence of cycle shifts, which of course got a lot of airplay because the idea that you know women's behaviour is influenced by their biology and maybe those pesky hormones that's been used to oppress women and to sort of um, discount their opinions, uh, um, you know, historically for hundreds of years. Um, and so that's a politically very palatable kind of outcome. The other team, led by a PhD student called Kelly Gildersleeve, um, and Marty Hazelton was her supervisor. Professor Hazelton is one of the leading um, researchers in this area. They um, sort of split the studies by long-term and short-term mating contexts, um, and they found that for the short-term mating context, there was evidence of an overall cycle shift. Now, you know, we're still sifting which was the best way to go. You know, what what is the right kind of answer? You shouldn't have to do this in science, but of course, you know, there, it's a complicated business. And so at the moment, the answer is still that it's pretty inconclusive whether these shifts really do happen. So the jury's still out on whether women are changing their preferences for men at this part of the cycle. But there is evidence to show that women change other aspects of their behaviour at this time of the month. One example comes from the infamous lap dance study conducted by a bunch of researchers at the University of New Mexico. These guys, Jeffrey Miller, Joshua Tiber and Brent Jordan, went to a bunch of lap dancers and asked them to record their tips over a 60-day period. They also recorded their menstrual cycle. And what they found was really cool. They found that dancers who were at the peak of fertility earned a spike in tips at that time of the month. And by contrast, when the dancers were menstruating, their tips plummeted. And when you compared these two groups with dancers who were on the contraceptive pill, you found that the dancers on the pill kind of flatlined throughout the whole period. They didn't show any of the ups or downs of the dancers who were cycling normally. So the idea behind the suppression of estrus is that it's a manifestation of what we call sexual conflict. Women are concealing things in order to sort of gain the upper hand in, in the, the commerce of sex, not necessarily monetary, but, you know, the, the transaction of sex. Um, but men, of course, should be really tuned into anything that they can pick up on that indicates um, when women are fertile, and they should show them lots of interest at that time. In the lap dance study, they showed that women who were cycling normally um, and in their fertile peak earned far more in tips than women outside of that cycle, which suggests that either women are showing off some kind of cue of their fertility or men are just really good at detecting uh, this cue despite women trying to conceal it or some combination of the two. Uh, it may be that the work is just less distasteful to them at that time of the month compared to, you know, um, at other periods. Who knows? Hold on a second. So women on the pill were doing something completely different to women who were cycling normally. That's really strange, and it's something that's quite commonly found in this research. Scientists have to treat women who are taking contraceptives in a completely different category to women who are cycling normally. That's because for women taking the pill, 
the pill is using hormones to trick their body into thinking it's pregnant, at least in a few very specific ways. And by mimicking pregnancy, the pill can also change our behavior, because the very same hormones that are responsible for controlling our reproductive cycles can also control our sexual behaviors and our desires. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's, there is some suggestion that women who meet their partner and sort of fall in love with them when they're on the pill, then subsequently come off the pill and suddenly go, I don't know what I saw in you, you know. Um, now, whether or not that holds up to subsequent analysis remains to be seen, but it's certainly a very interesting proposition. Okay, so women's preferences for men may or may not change throughout their cycle. But the lap dance study and a bunch of other studies show us that women's behavior probably does change throughout the cycle, and so does their attractiveness to men. Other studies have found things like women's face shape and skin texture can change at different parts of their cycle, making them more attractive to men when they're most fertile. Women's sensitivity to odours has also been shown to change, and scientists think that this might be involved in their ability to pick up pheromones. Last week I was at the um, International Society for Human Ethology conference in Belém, Brazil, and uh, one of the big wigs in that society is Carl Grammer from Austria. And Carl presented a talk in which he, you know, he did some computer models of um, the various parameters involved in this idea of gene shopping, and he was very dubious that it could have, could work. What Carl said was all of these findings could be explained by the fact that basal temperature is higher during and around ovulation, which is, you know, what happens when you use a, therm a thermometer to measure basal temperature, the a spike in temperature is indicative of ovulation. And so, you know, couples wanting to get pregnant use that. Now, I've thought about it. I'm not 100% sure that all of these things can be explained by basal temperature. But anyway, it's a provocative idea because it says, here's a really simple mechanism. The other side of it is, of course, that just providing a simple mechanism like temperature doesn't stop it from being adaptive. In evolutionary biology, we have a distinction that we make between the proximate and the ultimate causes, or the mechanism, which is how it happens, and you know the, the adaptation, which is why it happens. Uh, it may be that, that part of the temperature rise is, in fact, to induce those kinds of changes in behavior. So, you know, um, the, the story's not over yet. I think Carl's got a long way to go in order to demonstrate his case. But it is interesting, and there's a lot happening at the moment. All right, so there's clearly a whole lot of work left to do in this area and a whole bunch of research that has to happen before we can really clear up some of these questions. Steve Gangasat is a leading researcher in this field, and he argues that we're paying attention to the wrong questions. What's far more interesting than the sex that women are having when they're likely to conceive a baby is the sex that women are having when they're not likely to conceive at all. So much of human sex can't possibly result in conception. We, we have contraceptives that render us infertile for long periods of time, um, precisely so that we can have lots of that kind of sex. Um, but on top of that, you know, outside of that six-day window, even in a normal 28-day cycle, um, uh, women are having plenty of sex, and they have sex when they're pregnant. Why is that? We need to pay much more attention to that. And at those times, and the hormones that characterize those times are actually um, associated with an increase in women's interest in their partners. So it may be that that is the adaptation we really need to explain, which is how women come to be so focused on the monogamous side of sex um, at, that, at the 
those times. And, and it's probably to keep them in around, to keep them interested, to keep things happening throughout the cycle. My name's Eddie. Thanks for listening to Dissecting Love. Coming up in episode three, sperm competition. We'll be talking all about semen with Dr. Angela Cream. See you then. Secret song is ever to be sung